Anyone who has participated in the torment of online leftist discourse can understand the sentiment that we are all Nietzscheans now. Just as Reagan reluctantly embraced the lessons of left-leaning Keynes, so too must leftists embrace the works of Nietzsche the aristocrat in relation to the general left Twitter desire to funnel all of one's anger and disappointment into simply getting mad at other leftists on Twitter. But which Nietzsche should one embrace? Those uninitiated with the more generative aspects of Nietzsche's work may be anxious to hear a supposed leftist speak positively of a man who despised democracy and egalitarianism as slave morality and ressentiment, and even referred to the socialist movements of his own day as being led by a herd mentality. But it is instead within Nietzsche's scorn for the social institutions of his time that caused those around him to punish overzealously and feel a guilt that denied them the capacity to truly live that we must pay closer attention to Nietzsche. This question, of exactly what within Nietzsche is worth listening to, was heavily investigated in a recent and controversial video produced by BreadTuber ContraPoints. In Envy, Natalie goes over the potential psychosocial factors that may lead someone online to be so envious of another online persona's success that they actively wished that person's downfall. It appears to me that the most strikingly insightful aspect of Natalie's video was the way in which she highlighted how unproductive much of the anger thrown around by many online leftists, and more generally by those who are members of the disaffected class, is. In the example of Twitter reveling in the suffering of rich kids at the failed Fire Festival, Natalie says, You know, maybe millennials couldn't get Bernie Sanders elected, but at least those sandwiches were garbage. She further explicates what I think is a correct worry of a particular manifestation of egalitarian politics, not aimed upon solidarity and creating a better future, but instead upon envy. But in general, I'm suspicious of envy as a motivation for politics. Because remember, the basic logic of envy is, if I can't have it, then no one can, which is a purely negative, destructive style of thinking. And that's even worse when you consider that envy is subjective. It doesn't necessarily target objective power and privilege. So envy in politics is not by any means relegated to the left. I think this is a perfectly salient analysis of unspecifically anti-establishment politics. Just because a group of individuals ostensibly aspires to destroy the elite, does not make it a generative political movement that can meaningfully create new avenues of change for the future. This reminds me of a piece by Alain Badiou, written on the Gilets jaunes or the Yellow Vest movement of France, where he says precisely this. An old adage states that not everything that moves ahead is red. Tout ce qui bouge n'est pas rouge. And for now, there is no sign of red in the Yellow Vest movement, which moves all right. Aside from yellow, I only see the tricolore, which is always rather suspect in mes yeux. I'm sorry for French people for doing that. As you will get into later, this is the distinction between a movement or tendency that simply moves towards destruction and one which destroys or critiques the established order for the sake of creation, or what Nietzsche considers the distinction between active and passive nihilism. Another example in which envy harms social movements that Natalie rightfully brings up is Joe Freeman's account of her experiences in American feminist movements. Natalie quotes from Freeman's book, Trashing the Dark Side of Sisterhood. The primary reason there have been so few 
great women blank is not merely that greatness has been undeveloped or unrecognized, but that women exhibiting potential for achievement are punished by both women and men. The fear of success is quite rational when one knows that the consequence of achievement is hostility and not praise. She then moves this analysis towards Twitter, and more specifically, trans Twitter. Envy, as a social phenomenon, often does not target those who are most privileged, as those people are not in any way close to those who are envious. Instead, it is those who achieve success within the proximity of the ire that activates this vice. Look, do I think some of the things Natalie said on Twitter are cringe? Absolutely. Do I think that Twitter, and more specifically trans Twitter, responded in any way which was proportional to the potential harm of the things she said? I mean, absolutely not. This is to the degree in which, like, I don't even feel comfortable talking about some of the wretched things that trans people did to her as a response to her problematic tweets. Ironically, most of the opinions that Natalie has had that I've disagreed more harshly with, all offline of course, because I would never engage in the discourse, seems to have actively been because of all of her cancellations. This helps indicate, to me, that these cancellations and the broader Twitter discourses actually make things worse, if anything. This reminds me of a recent thread posted by Q, formerly known as Andre, who tweeted out, Has anyone scolded on this website to do better actually done better? I don't mean, has anyone who's been scolded on here actually had a positive character arc? I mean, have they specifically been told, do better, and their whole trajectory changed after that? To which notable Twitch streamer and property owner Hasanabi responded, I only get worse, TBH. This is a sentiment that I totally understand especially seeing the ridiculous discourse around Hassan recently. I've seen, for instance, some reasonable left content creator who I was fond of go down what I can only describe as the deep end as a result of ridiculous, vitriolic criticism from people on left Twitter. This is absolutely a subtweet, or is a sub-YouTube video? I'm not used to doing subliminals through video form, but it's I'm trying to make it general enough that it can be applied to so many potential people that you will never know who I'm talking about. I mean, look, there's a reason I'm off Twitter. I haven't faced anything nearly as bad as Natalie, but any bigger account on there, especially a trans account, will necessarily receive visceral harassment. And I don't mean harassment by transphobes. Funny enough, I can tolerate that. It's the harassment by other trans people that was magnitudes more harmful to my mental well-being. As you'll see later, a primary aspect of ressentiment is a disproportionately harsh desire to punish those who are deemed evil for the sake of moral righteousness. But the main question I will be interrogating in this video is exactly why that ressentiment is present. I personally do not think that Natalie does the question justice, and I especially don't think her reading of Nietzsche does it justice. Before I go too in-depth with the general problems I have with Natalie's reading of Nietzsche, and more generally how my own left-wing Nietzscheanism, inspired by Deleuze, goes against much of what Natalie says in the video, I will have to go over the notion of will to power, ressentiment, and bad conscience. The will to power for Nietzsche is the essential life force that drives all living beings towards excellence. It is a blade of grass cutting through concrete, it is Genghis Khan tearing across the steps, it is a painter coloring in a canvas. It is me writing and creating this video about contrapoints. All that these different things have in common is that they are a life force of some sort attempting to exert themselves onto the world. 
a life force which is unable to exert their will to power becomes unhealthy. Just as, you know, a blade of grass that gets no sun wilts over. Or a human being who is denied a meaningful creative outlet may become physically as well as mentally depressed. It is certainly clear that the will to power under Nietzsche is a phenomenon in which encompasses acts of force and strength towards the domination of others. This is what is evoked fairly naturally in its name. But Nietzsche is quick to highlight how the will to power is not only seen in these acts of domination, but, as I've highlighted, in the creative or even compassionate moral acts that an individual might take. Resentiment, which I will of course say in the most pretentiously possible French way, uh, was covered quite extensively in Contra's video. So the question is, what happens psychologically to people who are oppressed and who lack the power to overthrow the oppressor? Well, in that case, frustrated vindictiveness builds over time to become this deep bitterness which Nietzsche gave the French name Resentiment, resentment in English. Resentment is born not just of wanting what someone has, but of a permanent frustration of the desire for revenge. Resentiment is an expression of a hatred towards others who are attempting to express a will to power that does not fit within one's own objective moral standards. A tangentially similar phenomenon to resentiment, which Natalie doesn't talk about, is bad conscience, which is the same hatred but projected inwards. One with a bad conscience subsequently feels guilt for attempting to be driven towards particular drives that are attempting to be satiated within themselves that go against this objective morality that they have. But this is no good, as to satiate these desires for the will to power is to live healthily. Again, imagine if a blade of grass felt guilty for growing through concrete. You know, it would not survive. As I'll get into later, both bad conscience and ressentiment are explicitly religious, but then are later secularized. For bad conscience, we can think of a Catholic being guilty of feeling sexual desire for someone who is not their spouse. And a secularized version of this being a woman who internalizes, you know, slut shaming. Ethical, consensual sexual engagements are, of course, great. This is a pro-fucking channel. Any, anti any of you anti-fuckers, get out of here. And Nietzsche thinks that Christian morality and its secularized iterations are suppressing a healthy drive within the individual. Natalie highlights how retributivist ressentiment becomes. As Nietzsche shows, the desire to punish those who are perceived to have harmed you is actually worse in those who have ressentiment than, you know, the hot-headed Chad alpha males of ancient Greece who embraced a master morality. We say revenge is best served cold, but actually revenge is only served cold. If it's served hot, if someone slaps you and you slap them back immediately, that's retaliation not revenge. You brought this on yourself. Revenge is only a possibility when you can't retaliate immediately. So you become vindictive. You start plotting and scheming. But if you're too weak, too impotent to have any hope of revenge, then you become resentful. So Nietzsche's argument is that a person who's too weak to get material revenge can instead get psychological revenge by creating a new morality. Huisantiment is of course a part of the will to power. It is an exertion of the will to power, but it's the will to power turning inward onto itself and also onto others when one punishes others to create an objective moral system which discourages authentic flourishing of the self and an authentic satiation of the will to power. Now, the main disagreement I have, I think, with Contra's video on envy 
appears to be her reading of the will to power and how it functions within different social formations. She appears to flatten certain kinds of becoming within Nietzsche that renders her unable to meaningfully point towards the specific social and economic and political causes of Ressentiment, and instead, in a pseudo-Freudian conservatism, asserts that there is a fundamental psychological quality to humans that must cause them to feel the type of envy people have felt towards her and others and me on Twitter. I say pseudo-Freudian, especially given the reference to Freud in the video, given that one of Freud's critiques of utopian projects in, for instance, Civilization and Its Discontents, is that our natural libidinal urges prevent us from not growing jealous of our neighbors and wanting to destroy them and, you know, take their property. It is only for Freud an ordered, civilized social formation with shared cultural and moral values slash rules that can allow for a meaningful sublimation or repression of these natural sadomasochistic libidinal urges for the destruction of others. I'm fairly certain I'm not taking Contra out of context in this reading, as it seems she genuinely does wish to describe the social phenomena of envy through a historically necessary psychosocial cause that cannot possibly be transcended by any, you know, utopian project. She, for instance, says, You might think that envy is simply the product of inequality, and that societies that have more inequality have more envy. I used to assume that too, but the more I think about it, the more I realize that might not be true. Envy is a basic part of human nature. Now that is, most certainly, not what Nietzsche thinks. And it is once we unflatten Nietzsche's different accounts of nihilism, and how the will to power functions, that we can arrive at something other than this what I can best describe as cynicism. Nietzsche, following Deleuze's reading of him, does not view ressentiment, which I will be saying in an even more pretentious way each time, as a psychological phenomenon. Ressentiment, and the will to power that constitutes nihilism, is firmly a product of different societies. You know, we live in a society, and you cannot ignore that when you analyze the will to power. It is only when we are together, of course, that one is made to feel guilty or when one desires to punish, and these feelings are very socially contingent. And we can certainly be together and not have these feelings, as I will highlight later on. This is firmly where I think Natalie goes wrong in her analysis. And by wrong, I mean it disagrees with me. And it extends beyond simply a misreading of Nietzsche, as I believe Nietzsche is right in his disagreement with her on the subject of whether envy is human nature, or a product of a specific social reality that is tangentially created and can be destroyed. For instance, when Contra attempts to give an example of how most cultures use envy to punish those who are wealthy, successful, praiseworthy, etc., she does so by bringing up, among other things, the phenomena of ostracism or exile within ancient Greek city-states. In ancient democratic Athens, there was a practice called ostracismos, which is the origin of the English word ostracism. Ostracism was a procedure where the Athenians would assemble and each person would write the name of a person they wanted to ostracize on a pottery shard called an ostracon. And whoever got the most votes would simply be banished from the city for 10 years. No questions asked. <laughs> I love the ancient world. Things were so direct. Often this was used to remove someone who was becoming too prominent or too arrogant or just annoying. According to Plutarch, I'm just gonna read this from Wikipedia, in one anecdote about Aristides, known as Aristides the Just, who was ostracized in 482, an illiterate citizen not recognizing him came up to ask him to write the name Aristides on his ostracon. When Aristides asked why, the man replied, 
It was because he was sick of hearing him being called the just. People in most cultures, not all, but most cultures understand that being envied is a massive social liability. The problem with this is that this is an entirely ahistorical reading of this general phenomenon. The process of exiling an important, powerful member of Athens can surely be interpreted through this appeal to a natural psychological drive. Yet this misses much of the historically rich context that allows for this phenomenon to actually be possible. A much more interesting reading of this phenomenon is that it was intended as a mechanism to strengthen Republican traditions by warding off any potential despotic king-like figure. On my reading, this was an expressly anti-tyrannical practice that came about as a result of an understandable fear that a powerful member of Athenian society would destroy the Athenian democratic institutions. I think this reading of ostracism is far more generative than Natalie's appeal to the universal psychological mechanism of envy, and allows us to consider those in ancient Greece not in an abstract, decontextualized, psychological way, but as situated social beings who had a very understandable disdain for despotic rule. In Ostracism and Democratic Self-Defense in Athens, Anthula Marcopolo writes, The prime instrument of Athenian democratic self-defense in the 5th century BCE was ostracism, a procedure that granted citizens the possibility to temporarily expel political figure from the city-state by public vote. To be sure, Athenians could, in general, deprive citizens of their rights as a punishment for various offenses through a vote in the assembly or the people's courts. Yet, Ostracism did not have a punitive character, for the intention was to save the city from extreme polarization and internal strife, rather than to charge an individual with a political crime. Moreover, the type of political exile that ostracism conferred was different from other types of exile, as it did not involve the loss of status and, importantly, of property. Here we have a perfect example of a social process that cannot be explained through an appeal to a universal human nature, but actually is uniquely historically significant. It was the particular social formation of Athenian democracy that led to such a peculiar phenomenon such as ostracism, especially considering how apparently not punitive the phenomenon was. This phenomenon can most certainly not be explained through the notion that there is a universal, natural human desire to punish others because one is envious of them. Instead, of course, Natalie uses it as evidence that certain elements of the social sphere can be explained through psychological mechanisms. That is, according to most readings of Nietzsche, not what Nietzsche wishes to highlight when he spoke of resentiment. Nietzsche's critique of Christianity, that I would argue is more nuanced than Nietzsche simply hating religion, is also bound up within his concept of the will to power, and of, of course, resentiment. To understand Nietzsche's view of nihilism and resentiment, one must understand his nuanced views on religion. It is not that the moral virtues associated with Christianity, you know, of compassion, kindness, moderation, etc., are bad for the will to power for Nietzsche. It is simply that Christianity has made these moral virtues the only objectively acceptable ones, leaving those who wish to exert their will to power through other means deprived of their ability. To say that these Christian virtues are also bad would ironically be the same thing that Nietzsche criticizes within Christianity, but reversed, discouraging those who exercise their will to power in ways that uh, relate to compassion and kindness, etc. So Natalie's reading of Nietzsche is wrong when she says, for instance, 
My other critique is that it doesn't seem to have occurred to Frederick that genuinely caring about other people is an option. Like not because caring about other people is repressing your true selfish nature, but just because caring about other people is part of your nature. And isn't it? Isn't caring about other people also in our nature? Nietzsche's main critique of Christianity is rooted in its denial of the will to power of those beings who do not fit within its objective moral framework. To be denied the capacity to exert one's will to power is disastrous, according to Nietzsche. It leads to a sickness that is both mental and physical, as Nietzsche, rightfully in my opinion, does not meaningfully distinguish between those two things. Christianity and the pseudo-Christian ethical philosophies of modernity, so the secularized versions of Christianity, have therefore led to a cultural sickness of sorts within Europe. A sickness that is the product of the individuals within that culture being unable to express their will to power. Ironically, Nietzsche was actually quite sympathetic to the spiritual figure of Jesus. This is one of the reasons that his own prophet character that he constructs to demonstrate how his own opinions are based and red-pilled was named Zarathustra, a crucial figure in Zoroastrianism that would later go on to influence the Christian theological construction of Jesus. Nietzsche is actually quite a religious thinker. It's only that the religion that he wishes to construct is not one that is treated as objective and allows for others who have different constituted drives towards the will to power to construct their own morality as well. Nietzsche's primary criticism of Christianity is that it objectifies its own moral values and subsequently leads to a destruction of the will to power and an inability to believe in anything religious. What do I mean by that? Uh, well, this is where I want to introduce the classic God is dead quote from Nietzsche. Importantly, when Nietzsche claims that God is dead, this is not a celebration of this event. Nietzsche is not happy that God is dead. In fact, it is one of the most horrific things to ever happen in world history, as it signifies a cultural sickness in which no one is able to gain meaningful spiritual fulfillment. To show this, I'll read you the context of the quote, God is dead, from The Gay Science, one of his books, which is of course about chemistry. In an aphorism titled, The Madman, Nietzsche says, have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you. We have killed him. You and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we enchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backwards, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as though an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breadth of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of those noises of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decompensation? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderer of all murderers? 
What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatest of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all hitherto. So God is dead because it's impossible for us to believe in him anymore. And the social and political institutions built upon God, even those which are ostensibly secular now, are now imposing this lack of belief onto us. This is why our culture, for Nietzsche, produces ressentiment, produces nihilism. You know, nihilism means, you know, the belief in nothing. We are unable to believe in anything authentic. We have no meaningful spiritual life. Importantly, the death of God allows for the creation of new avenues of escape from this ressentiment. As Nietzsche highlighted in the notion that we must become gods ourselves in order to appear worthy of his murder. This is where I will introduce a left-wing philosopher, Gilles Deleuze, and his appropriation of Nietzsche to envision a meaningful anti-capitalist movement. Now, Deleuze's reading of Nietzsche makes the distinction between will to power, which falls under joy, and that which falls under nihilism. Joy is a reference to Spinoza. The distinction between joy and nihilism is crucial for a substantive left reading of Nietzsche, in my opinion. Joy, for Deleuze, is a will to power in which overcomes the societal constraints placed upon oneself and allows one to exist towards a meaningful future, while nihilism is the preservation of these societal constraints. Nihilism is bound up in the desire to dominate others and celebrate retributivism and punishment. It is a societal force, contained both within an individual subject as well as within all of society, that preserves a decadent culture and denies subjects their capacity for creation. Again, nihilism is when we were describing ressentiment. So joy is a will to power which can envision a future beyond the death of God and beyond ressentiment, while nihilism is one in which reinforces that ressentiment. Nihilism reinforces the social and political institutions that led us to the death of God, that caused meaningful spiritual beliefs to be impossible. This nihilism is a self-negating force. It uses the will to power against itself. It represses the natural drives that the individual has towards excellence. It is also important to note of the Deleuzean concept of pure becoming as it relates to the will to power. Deleuze notes that to will something, or to think of it, is necessarily to create. The will to power, wherever it is present, you know, in a painter painting on a canvas, a philosopher developing his theories, a movement struggling against its oppressors, etc., is a process of creation. What this means is that to prevent this will to power is to prevent the creative capacities that are necessary for this pure becoming. Even nihilism is, of course, productive and creative in this metaphysical sense but it is a creation that attempts to negate itself. Nihilism comes with a world perspective that it creates, you know, such as Christianity or secularized form of Christianity. And Nietzsche wishes to highlight how the perspectives it brings about are false. So essentially, all will to power necessarily comes with this perspective that one creates. One can either create a generative perspective that creates new futures, or one can create a nihilistic perspective that, if it takes over society, denies individuals their capacity to believe in anything authentic. So that's what Christianity does. It destroys itself. It creates a worldview that we can no longer believe in. 
Additionally, all readings of Nietzsche and of the will to power must in some ways reconcile with Nietzsche's three metamorphoses within The Spoke Zarathustra. These are the camel, the lion, and the child at play. The camel is a being of ressentiment. They are overloaded, just as the camel is full of water, with the already existing objective moral values of their society, which are of course intolerable. The lion is then the camel which breaks out of this objective moral bind, and does so by finally fighting against the social dragon of objective morality and ressentiment. So the lion is fighting against the beliefs created by nihilism. And this, to be clear, this sort of sounds like Young or Peterson stuff. It's not, don't worry. A opposite use of the social dragon thing, as far as I understand. To be the lion is to do philosophy with the hammer, as Nietzsche says. So that's to critique the social beliefs that constitute nihilism. The lion screams no, and destroys a particular element of the will to power, but in a productive way. So destroys nihilism, but for its own sake to be able to create. Here, one can distinguish between what Nietzsche refers to as active nihilism and passive nihilism, as I referred to in the start of the video. Both are, of course, nihilism, or a movement towards nothing, a destruction of the will to power and a belief and a perspective that comes about as a result of the will to power. But active nihilism is a destruction, like the line who screams no, for the purpose of meaningful creation. It creates room for this creation after the death of God. Passive nihilism is that of the camel, or of ressentiment. It destroys itself through guilt, bad conscience, and, you know, the punishment of others. The lion, after it is done destroying the social dragon, is able to develop into the child at play, who can freely create without a society imposing guilt onto it. Essentially, the camel cringes at itself and others and the lion destroys the part of itself that cringes. But how does Natalie's reading of Ressentiment fit into this in a practical sense? Is the lion who says no an aristocratic, solitary individual who critiques and destroys cultural institutions to make room for his own exertion of strengths, as a more conservative reading of Nietzsche would suggest? Or are they instead a political assemblage, bound together in solidarity, overcoming the social and political forces of subjugation and domination which lead towards a nihilistic state of affairs? This is not a question that one who embraces Nietzsche can afford not to answer, I think, as Nietzsche's primary political goal is to find the cause of this ressentiment within culture and, like a doctor would treat a patient, identify a solution to our cultural sickness. This is why I think Natalie's video, especially the end of it, is so troubling. I do not think as she has presented her interpretation of Nietzsche at least, that she has the capacity to conceptualize ressentiment and its root cause outside of a sort of conservative vulgarization of Nietzsche's work. When we think of ressentiment as a problem of the haves and the have-nots, as I feel has been represented in her video, we also importantly ignore the degree to which Nietzsche's analysis is one that rejects the existence of a metaphysical subject. Now, what do I mean by this? Because, you know, that's bullshit philosophy terms. Well, Nietzsche denies the ego as a coherent being. The basic metaphysical unit in Nietzsche are instead the drives. These, these drives are the will to power. There are multiple of them within us, vying for control. So, for instance, when one smokes a cigarette and they feel guilt about smoking that cigarette, there are multiple drives within the self. One that says... Mm, nicotine. And the other that says, well, maybe you shouldn't do that. 
the question of what the individual does is not a question of their whole character, it's a question of which drive within them is stronger. So these drives are like the basic unit of for Nietzsche. And for a single being to be considered healthy, the most powerful drives must be the ones that are dominant. You know, resentiment or bad conscience may prevent these drives from flourishing because they're deemed evil. So one has a drive to excel in a particular way, and that drive is generally dominant, but then there's a drive that feels guilt and suppresses that other drive. This is bad for the organism that feels this health. Importantly, on this view of ressentiment and the will to power, this says nothing really about material wealth or power in the sense of, you know, a powerful politician or a billionaire. This may be somewhat confusing again because Nietzsche uses the phrase will to power. But in fact, Nietzsche has nothing but contempt for these so-called powerful, rich people. That's right, folks. Nietzsche hates to see a girl boss winning. As an example of this, Nietzsche refers to the state as the new idol within Thus Spoke Zarathustra, as a clear reference to the state and the corporate bureaucracy as the new god after God has died. In the same aphorism, when referring to powerful politicians and businessmen, Nietzsche says, Watch them scramble, these swift monkeys. They scramble all over each other, and thus drag one another down into the mud and depths. They all want to get to the throne. It is their madness, as if happiness sat on the throne. Often mud sits on the throne, and often too the throne on mud. Mad all of them seem to me, and scrambling monkeys and overly aroused. Their idol smells foul to me, the cold monster. Together they all smell foul to me, these idol worshippers. Many seats are still empty for the lonesome and twosome, fanned by the fragrance of silent seas. An open life still stands open for great souls. Indeed, whoever possesses little is possessed all the less. Praise be to a little poverty. There, where the state ends, only begins the human being who is not superfluous. There begins the song of necessity, the unique and irreplaceable melody. There, where the state ends. Look there, my brothers. Do you not see it? The rainbow and the bridges to the overman? Temporal power and wealth for Nietzsche are actually distractions, if anything, to help repress the most powerful drives and help embolden nihilism. I feel as if Natalie has misunderstood what Nietzsche means when he says power, to mean the personal power of an individual subject, and not the capacity for the drives to exert themselves in the world. I especially feel this when she presents this Martin Luther King quote as a response to Nietzsche. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. Now, this quote is just simply not in conversation with Nietzsche on the will to power and morality. In reference to the notion that love must necessarily accompany power, to love someone or something, for Nietzsche, is necessarily a drive or an exertion of the will to power. It is one making a meaningful, creative statement about truth in a meaningless world. When one says, you know, this thing, this person is truly wonderful, or I love them, they exert their will to power. This compassion is an exertion of the will to power. Like a painter painting on a blank canvas, they're staking a claim on a particular part of the world, and they are doing so with compassion. You know, Nietzsche thinks that that is quite good. 
So one cannot, in the Nietzschean sense, therefore, have love without power. In summary, nihilism and ressentiment should not be seen as a psychological drive, but a social reality that is created by the will to power. Nihilism is a will to power that creates a set of truth statements that suppresses many meaningful expressions of the will to power, does not allow particular beings to satiate those drives. And these are socially contingent. The most obvious example of this repression, to me, considering we're on the topic of love, is an attempt by Christian morality to repress queer desire. This is a denial of the social reality of queer people, an authentic, meaningful exertion of the will to power that are contained within these realities. Oftentimes, when it's bad enough, these beings literally wilt over like a dying plant. Considering that ressentiment has a markedly social and not a moral or psychological cause, this overall discussion makes it important to think about, in the contemporary age, what social and political forces could be the primary drives of ressentiment. Instead of taking for granted its presence, we must look towards the social institutions that prevent one from meaningfully expressing their will to power, and critique and destroy these institutions. What truths do these institutions uphold? How do they block particular actions and drives that lead to adverse physical and mental health effects? It is in the rigidity of these institutions, which appear as if they are immutable, that prevent those on Twitter who experience envy from directing their energy towards what Deleuze calls joy, or a will to power that is generative and creative, and instead leads them towards meaninglessly criticizing each other on a social media website owned by a billionaire. Now, however much a cliche this term may be, especially in a left tube video, I would identify the primary social dragon in which we need to slay in order to reveal a future that is authentically generative to be neoliberalism. Very specifically, because I won't just throw this word around because people love just saying everything that is bad is neoliberalism. I will be drawing on Benjamin Noy's account of neoliberalism. This is essentially the view that neoliberalism replaces the political with purely the economic. Noyes firstly draws upon Foucault's account of neoliberalism within his lecture series, The Birth of Biopolitics, which should probably better be described as The Birth of Neoliberalism, because that's what it's about. But the essential point within this lecture series is that whereas classical liberalism focused on restricting the capacities of the state to allow markets to function, neoliberalism focuses on reorganizing and reorienting the state to guide the market. This is an important point to make because a lot of people describe neoliberalism as when the state doesn't do anything, which is, I think, far from any of the sort of empirical um, and political trends that have happened since the dawn of neoliberalism. To quote from Foucault, neoliberalism is, quote, a state under the supervision of the market rather than a market supervised by the state. It is within neoliberalism that we see a state that is entirely different than any other state beforehand. Unlike the Keynesian account of a social democratic welfare state, the neoliberal state intervenes in society for market forces. It uses its authority to marketize more and more. It was with the destruction of the Nazi German state that economic planners could put this task or general view of what the state should do into work most efficiently. This was an attempt to ward off the potential future rise of fascism or, considering the Cold War context they were working in, uh, communism. To quote Noyes' grammar of neoliberalism, 
A text by the German economist Wilhelm Röpke from 1950 sets out the objectives of government as allowing access to private property, reducing urban sprawl to be replaced with private housing, and the development of craft and small enterprises, described by Röpke as non-proletarian, and the organic reconstruction of society on the basis of community, family, and the local. As Foucault says, you will recognize this text, as it has been repeated 25,000 times for the last 25 years. At the heart of this vision, which is what makes it neoliberal, is this multiplication of the enterprise from within the social body. It is a matter of making the market, competition, and so the enterprise, into what could be called the formative power of society. Neoliberalism wishes to use the state to ingrain market relations as the fundamental social mechanism of politics. Politics cannot be seen without some interaction with capitalist economic policy. If one is not talking policy, or creating a political program which attempts to achieve a particular neoliberal economic policy, then they are simply not talking sense. All of this communism talk, all of this destruction of capitalism, it's incoherent. Instead of the impassioned interwar Weimar coffee shop debates between socialists, social democrats, and fascists about the potentially open political future, the neoliberal system wishes to replace this discourse with one that is purely economical and technical. Noyes identifies neoliberalism as being introduced into West Germany as a way of, quote, immunizing us against fascism by trading the political for the economic. And yet, of course, it also attempts to immunize us from any line of escape from the current system. There is no overcoming, no creative destruction for a better world in which the people do not have to work 80-hour work weeks, no end to homelessness, scarcity, exploitation, domination. Things can only possibly get marginally better. This is where I'm quite critical of Natalie's video, specifically the later section of it. I believe that to utilize a truly generative left-wing account of ressentiment, it must not involve an endorsement of a politic that fits within this neoliberal consensus. This goes beyond my simple and pretty obvious personal dislike of this reformist political stance, and towards the notion that for ressentiment to not be a mere conservative justification of power and authority, it must go further than merely advocating for tacit reform. In her video, Natalie develops the concept of ideologies of resentment, because she's not pretentious and just uses the English word instead of the French, which is a discourse that outwardly appears like moral or political critique, but which on examination is mainly just a resentful moan. The goal of resentment politics is not to improve conditions. In fact, the resentful person is full of contempt for any morally compromised sellouts who are attempting to enact plausible reforms. They don't want victory. They don't want power. They want to endlessly critique power because for them, critique is an important psychological defense against feeling impotent. As a general rule, the more radical a political community claims to be, the more likely it is to be a community of resentment. Self-styled radicals will tell you, superficial surface reforms do not interest us. The problem must be critiqued at its root. To meaningfully locate a social cause of ressentiment beyond a conservative vulgarization of Nietzsche, which sees it simply at the level of those who live worse lives are jealous of those who live more comfortable, one must move beyond the neoliberal consensus, beyond economic reforms within the current system which are better than nothing. It is expressly because of the crushing weight of the lack of an avenue of escape from the current system, from market relations enforced by the state which attempt to swallow one whole 
that cause those online to feel ressentiment, to lash out at those around them on left Twitter in unproductive and ungenerative ways. So basically, if you don't want people to be mean to you on Twitter, you have to critique and dismantle the social formation which causes so many to feel ressentiment. It is not natural, and giving people a capacity to meaningfully act in the political world is an avenue of escape from it. Mark Fisher highlights how the contemporary mental health crisis is contextualized through ideology. Instead of depression and anxiety being seen as an explicitly political issue that is a product of poverty, domination, powerlessness, hopelessness, etc., they're instead contextualized through the language of biology. Depression is merely a chemical imbalance that must be sorted out by medication, and we don't have to pay attention to systemic issues of domination and exploitation, which play a very large factor in depression for many. Depression is subsequently flattened into a natural psychological phenomena, which will always exist, and we don't have to look at politics. This view of depression as a chemical imbalance, an idea often parroted even in far leftist circles, you know, when someone jokes about depression being a lack of serotonin, brackets the social determinants of something like depression, making its causes seem as if they are only solvable through, you know, increased expenditures in the pharmaceutical industry. We do not even have to go as far as Fisher in his critique of, for instance, cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT, which yes, that is what it stands for. I'm not referring to any other CBT within this video. I want to be clear about that. Does not handle something like depression primarily through medications, but firstly treats depression through developing habits that minimize or entirely eliminate the negative symptoms associated with it. These habits like, you know, socializing more, eating healthier, exercising, etc. Now, of course, if one is living in poverty, you know, working multiple precarious gig economy jobs, anxious about whether they can pay rent or not, the solutions provided by CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, will not be nearly as useful. Physicians in the UK, for instance, came up with the term SLS, or shit life syndrome, to describe this phenomenon. If one's lack of mental well-being is systemic, then there are limited things that a doctor, psychologist, physician, psychiatrist, etc. can do to alleviate one's suffering, especially if they only have 15 minutes with a patient as a result of a lack of funding for mental health. Additionally, the notion that depression is a chemical imbalance in the brain is not even backed up particularly well by psychology. The numerous clinical trials surrounding antidepressants and their efficacy have shown that something far more complex is going on than simply a, for instance, lack of serotonin in the brain. Anyone who has been prescribed SSRIs, which help the brain produce serotonin, will know this, given the fact that one of the potential side effects of this class of medication is that it actually makes your depressive symptoms worse. To be clear, SSRIs are certainly effective for many experiencing depression, especially in more severe cases, yet they are far from the main or the only solution within psychological literature. A meta-analysis done by the Institute for Quality and Efficiency in Healthcare in Cologne, Germany concluded that Without antidepressants, about 20 to 40 out of 100 people who took a placebo noticed an improvement in their symptoms within 6 to 8 weeks. With antidepressants, about 40 to 60 out of 100 people who took an antidepressant noticed an improvement in their symptoms within 6 to 8 weeks. This should help demonstrate that while antidepressants are effective, they cannot necessarily target the root cause of depression. If all depression is, is a chemical imbalance in one's brain, a medication that undoes this imbalance ought to theoretically help drastically or reduce all symptoms in everyone who has depression. Yet again, this is clearly not the case. This is all to say 
that much of where Natalie has identified the cause of ressentiment, a phenomenon which is reasonable to imagine, is often connected with depression, anxiety, hopelessness, powerlessness, poverty, etc., may accidentally lead us into the ideological conclusion that depression is merely a chemical imbalance in the brain, or at least lead us to a conclusion that is similarly ideological. Again, it is important to highlight the Nietzschean point that ressentiment, and more broadly nihilism, create a physical as well as a mental sickness in the organism experiencing them. The breaking down of the divide between physical and mental health is one that Frantz Fanon also writes about in the colonial situation within French Algiers. In The North African Syndrome, Fanon identifies how systemic racism negatively affects the colonized subject's mental and physical well-being. The title of the chapter refers to a colloquial term used by French doctors in Algeria to refer to when a colonized person is complaining about an ailment and is not being believed. The French doctors perceive these North Africans as malingering and lying about having an ailment, presumably to get out of work. It is not, of course, that the North African patient is lying. It is that they are sick as a product of their social formation. Borrowing fairly explicitly from Nietzsche, Fanon sees this as a product of nihilism, or the inability for the colonized subject to produce a social reality that is perceived as valuable. Fanon refers to the daily deaths of the colonized subjects who experience this phenomenon, his evolution and the story of his life. It would be better to say the history of his death. A daily death, a death in the tram, a death in the doctor's office, a death with the prostitutes, a death on the job site, a death at the movies, a multiple death in the newspapers, a death in the fear of all decent folk of going out after midnight, a death, yes, a death. But that's just it. It is our fault. It so happens that the fault is your fault. This man who you thingify by calling him systematically Muhammad, whom you reconstruct, or rather whom you dissolve on the basis of an idea, an idea you know to be repulsive well, don't you have the impression that you are emptying him of his substance? The point I wish to bring up through Fanal is that this is not a question of a doctor merely prescribing the colonized subject antidepressants. The issue that is causing their pain is one that is political. The French are in Algeria, and until they leave, this will continue. This is probably why Fanon quit his job as a psychiatrist in Algeria and took up arms with the FLN to fight the French. I wish to assert the exact same thing about ressentiment in our own age. Not, of course, to bracket out the literal phenomena Fanon is describing of racism within medicine, which is most certainly still an incredibly prominent issue, with in America, for instance, white doctors being far less likely to believe the pain of black patients, I instead do this to show that mental illness exists within the social field, cannot be essentialized through biology, and often the solutions to mental unwellness are necessarily political. One of the main causes that Mark Fisher, to bring him back, identifies for the current malaise is the lack of an avenue for meaningful change within the political sphere. Faced with the British election between New Labour and the Tories in 2005, for instance, Mark Fisher said within Don't Vote, Don't Encourage Them, there are those who would like to pretend that a Tory administration would be so much worse than New Labour, so that deigning to vote for anyone else would be an indulgence. Choosing the least worst is not making this particular choice. It is also choosing a system which forces you to accept the least worst as the best you can hope for. Naturally, the defenders of the dictatorship of the elite pretend, perhaps they even deceive themselves, that the particular slew of lies, compromise and smarm they're hawking is only temporary. 
that at some unspecified time in the future, things will improve if only we support the progressive wing of the status quo. But Hobson's choice is no choice, and the delusion of progressivism is not a psychological quirk. It is the structural illusion upon which liberal democracy is based. What could be worse for our souls, in terms of nihilism, than a tacit endorsement of the lesser of two evils? The notion that all that is possibly achievable of our movements fits within this neoliberal consensus is precisely why we see these problems on Twitter in the first place. Ressentiment is not a product of the assertion that society must be fundamentally altered from the ground up no less. It is instead a product of the assertion that there is no alternative. It is where disaffected, marginalized, exhausted, hopeless people place their energy when there is no meaningful alternative to believe in. It is a passive nihilism that amounts to spiritual death, where the hegemony of the neoliberal consensus attempts to block one from the active nihilism of the lion who says no, of a meaningful social political movement that transcends the current order. Instead of choosing this least worse, Fisher instead demands that we put pressure on the government through our own movements outside of the system. On another piece from his blog, K-Punk, he notes of his experiences partaking in the 2010 UK student protests. The only thing I can compare the current situation with is emerging from a state of deep depression. There's the rush that you get from simply not being depressed anymore, the occasional lurching anxieties, a sense of how precarious it all seems, don't drag me back into nothing, and yet not only is it maintaining itself, it's proliferating, intensifying, feeding on itself. It's impossible, but it's happening. The reality program resetting itself. Now there is of course more to the story with the Natalie's video than the specific clip I linked to before. And some of what she says, I do agree with. Uh, she speaks of ressentiment and the desire to critique as being, It's not about healthcare, higher wages, relief from police violence. Those are actual goals that could be demanded, worked for and achieved. While I fully agree with this, importantly, one can walk and chew gum at the same time. Creating movements and organizations that put pressure on neoliberal governments to put in place these sort of reforms is a wonderful way of showing people that they do in fact have the capacity to create change, to exert their will to power, to do philosophy with the hammer, to take the social truths and realities of ressentiment and you know the social dragon and to smash them. The waking up from a depression that Fisher refers to is one in which people realize they can make their own future and do not have to settle for merely lobbying to the lesser of two evil neoliberal candidates with their measly little vote. But to take a lesson from Nietzsche, and more specifically, Nietzsche interpreted through Deleuze, this pressure is only meaningful when it comes from without the institutions of power, from the ground up. We put pressure on governance to give us what we want. That should be the primary concern for leftist organizations today, not on campaigning for the least worst capitalist party. Until we can do this, more and more disaffected people will gather on places like Twitter, a website seemingly designed by Satan himself to torture everyone who uses it, and vent their frustration and powerlessness into an online ether, which is, far more often than not, not meaningful or productive. I feel like where Natalie mainly goes wrong in her analysis, and by goes wrong I mean disagrees with me, is the lack of a recognition that ressentiment is the product of a very specific contingent social formation that can be transcended through an exertion of the will to power in a meaningful creative political project. 
She instead contextualizes ressentiment as a natural psychological phenomenon. As Chelsea Manning said on Twitter, Major revolts are not driven by want, by desire, or by the envy of a group of individuals. They are driven by deteriorating material conditions, failing civil institutions and infrastructure, successive waves of repression by governments. In essence, it's about need, necessity, and survival. This isn't even a philosophical question or debate, but rather a fundamental doctrinal understanding in military and insurgency, counterinsurgency history and literature. I don't understand why this is being discussed this week of all weeks. The world is objectively on fire. I don't think this discussion is intentional per se, but it is the direct result of an incentive structure that algorithmically and financially rewards the creation of distraction, misdirection, and general discord among folks toward the benefit of incumbent institutions and power. So in summary, do not give up hope in a better future. Critique to the root and build social and political institutions which attempt to see beyond a neoliberal state capitalist social formation. Critique for the purpose of creation and do philosophy with a hammer, whether that hammer be metaphorical or literal. So what is the solution? Well, for starters, you should log off. In anti-Hegelian fashion, Nietzsche believes that to truly go against the ressentiment of angry Twitter users, you do not oppose them with every fiber of your being. Opposition of this sort, to vulgarize Hegel, forms a relational antithesis to their thesis, in which one is necessarily bound to them. This leads the thesis and antithesis to be, quote, transformed into a unity. But alongside Deleuze's reading of Nietzsche, we don't want this. We don't want the unity with the angry people on Twitter. In paradoxical fashion, to truly oppose something, one must not oppose it at all. What do I mean by this? Well, we can think of Nietzsche's hatred for city life as an example. In Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Nietzsche's prophet figure, which is meant to mirror his own philosophy, abandons the larger social settings of the marketplace and the city, which are infested with ressentiment, in order to overcome them. Upon visiting a large city, he meets one of his supposed followers at the gates. This follower warns him of how awful city life is, and how terrible those who inhabit the city are. As he is droning on and on about the ressentiment of the city, Zarathustra interrupts him, saying, Stop at last, your speech and your ways have nauseated me for a long time already. Why have you lived so long near the swamp, that you yourself have turned into a frog and a toad? Doesn't tainted and frothy, decrepit swamp blood flow in your own veins now, since you have learned to croak and lambast this way? Why didn't you go into the woods, or plow the earth? Isn't the sea full of green islands? I despise your despising. And if you warned me, why didn't you warn yourself? Out of love alone shall my despising and my warming bird fly up, but not out of the swamp. They call you my ape, you foaming fool, but I call you my grunting swine. By grunting, you will not yet spoil my praise of folly. What was it, after all, that made you start grunting? Then no one flattered you enough, so you sat down to this garbage in order to have reason to grunt a lot, in order to have reason for a lot of revenge? Indeed, all of your foaming is revenge, you vain fool. I guessed you well, but your fool's words injure me, even where you are right. And if Zarathustra's words were right even a hundred times, you would always do wrong with my words. It is this seething hatred of those within the big city that makes one precisely like them, internalizing their ressentiment, even if one is opposing it. 
The follower of Zarathustra spends all of their energy hating and resenting those with resentiment that, ironically, they become like them. Their will to power is not focused on joy or overcoming or energy that could be spent towards productive creative projects, but on a hatred and a desire for revenge which overcomes them. Nietzsche places resentiment within a hyper-retributivism in which punishment is justified through moral principles, making this punishment even more intensified. Often, this punishment is directed towards those who are simply expressing their own will to power. Thus, this retributivism denies many beings the capacity to exert themselves in a way which is both physically and spiritually healthy. The desire to use an objective ethical framework and punish those who break this framework because they deserve it is therefore firmly rooted in ressentiment. As an example of how this ressentiment can meaningfully be transcended, even within Nietzsche, the conservative aristocrat, he imagines a political community which is so free of ressentiment and bad conscience and able to exert its will to power to such an extent that it abolishes punishment altogether. In Genealogy of Morals, he writes, It is possible to conceive of a society blessed with so great a consciousness of its own power as to indulge in the most aristocratic luxury of letting its wrongdoers go scot-free. What do my parasites matter to me, might society say? Let them live and flourish. I am strong enough for it. Nietzsche the aristocrat might imagine this political community to be a separate entity from others who are still, by their nature, unable to reach this ideal of not desiring and seeking revenge. Yet a left-wing reading of Nietzsche might suggest that these sort of political communities in which punishment as a method for handling harm is abolished, may come about through the deconstruction of political and social institutions in which certain individuals can cause such a large degree of harm. Think about it this way. I am a trans lesbian communist. At least 30% of the adult population of the world would either be happy or ambivalent if I was murdered for one or more of these categories. Do I want to murder them back? Would I be ambivalent if they were murdered? Most certainly not. I would simply wish for them to exist in a society in which there is not a political apparatus to cause these types of harm that they desire to cause. I wish to live in a society in which I can exclaim, what do my parasites matter to me? Let them live and flourish. To do this, of course, requires a fundamental reimagining of social and political institutions, of the doing away with a capitalist state apparatus which is dependent on domination and exploitation. If this applies to those who wish to murder me, it most certainly also applies to those who are mean to me on Twitter. It is only when one lets go of a desire for revenge and a hatred of ressentiment that one can truly transcend it. And given the fact that the last few videos by Natalie have been, at least tangentially, about cancel culture and exactly why people are mean to her on Twitter, I would also advise Natalie to take the same advice that Nietzsche gives to his city-dwelling follower. Log off. I hope you all liked that. That was my first sort of try at like a YouTube video. This is also available on podcast form. You can go search Liv Agar on whichever podcast hosting site you use. If you're listening to this through the podcast, there's also a YouTube form. You can go onto my YouTube, just search Liv Agar. I also stream on Twitch uh, three times a week, twitch.tv slash This video is also released early to my patrons on patreon.com slash for $2 a month. Uh, thank you to Jennifer... Sierra and Solar Party for supporting me on Patreon, and I will see you all next video.